You are listening to the Performance Anxiety Podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I am your host, Mark. And with two notes, James Calvin Wilsey announced his presence to the music world at large. But by the time Wicked Game launched Chris Isaac, Rowan Sally, Kenny Dale Johnson, and James Calvin Wilsey onto MTV and in front of millions, Jimmy was already living a very rock and roll lifestyle, one that would lead him to crash and burn half an album later. Journalist and author Michael Goldberg joins the podcast to discuss James Wilsey and the new book he's written about his life, death, and the music he left behind. It may be the most heartbreaking episode I've ever recorded. Michael discusses Jimmy's early days in school and how he started playing with the Avengers in San Francisco, meeting Chris Isaac and deciding he didn't really want to play with him initially. We also talk about his time as a consultant for Apple and in IT for a Hollywood marketing company. But even through his addiction to heroin, Jimmy was always working on music. In addition to the solo album he released, El Dorado, there was so much more, including music with Billy Idol and Lana Del Rey. It's a heartbreaking and fascinating story. So pick up Michael's book, Wicked Game, the true story of guitarist James Calvin Wilsey from Hozak Books. A percentage of the sales will go to help Jimmy's son, Waylon. There's a link in the notes, and you can follow Michael on social media to see what he's up to. Follow us at Performance ANX on social media. Buy stuff at performanceanx.threadless.com. Or buy us a cup of coffee at ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety. I get some tissues and check out the story of James Calvin Wilsey with Michael Goldberg on Performance Anxiety, part of Pantheon Podcasts. So I'm Michael Goldberg. I'm a journalist, a novelist, and a photographer. I've been interviewing musicians and photographing musicians since I was 17. I wrote for uh, Esquire, the New Musical Express, Cream, Downbeat, New York Rocker, Trouser Press, Musician, I mean, a lot of different places. And I was a senior writer at Rolling Stone for a decade. I founded the first rock internet magazine, Addicted to Noise. And um, let's see, what else can I tell you? This book is called Wicked Game, the true story of guitarist James Calvin Wilsey. And at the end of the year, I have a collection of my writing coming out, Addicted to Noise, the music writings of Michael Goldberg. And it's been really great to be on performance anxiety. Or I'm just so happy. I should try that again. Um, <laughs> I'm really happy that I've been invited to be on performance anxiety. And I think we're going to have uh, have a good show. I'm really looking forward to to telling your listeners all about you know Jimmy Wilsey and why he was uh, important and why I wrote a book about him. This is really. This it's it's fascinating to me because when I first started thinking about doing this podcast, the subject of your book is James Calvin Wilsey, and he was one of the people that I wanted to get on the podcast. And I'm not I'm trying to remember if he had if I had found out he had just passed or he passed very soon after I started, and uh, I figured there there went my chance. So having yeah, yeah. having somebody who knew him and has written a book about him is the next best thing. So thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> oh, sure. No, thanks for having me. This is great. So before we get into the subject of the book, let's find out a little bit about you. How did you become a writer? Did you play music growing up or was music just uh, something that was a hobby? Well, actually, I mean, I did, I did take piano lessons and guitar lessons. Um, the thing was, you know, after the Beatles hit, uh, everybody wanted to learn to play guitar, including me. And 
the thing is, everyone wanted to learn to play electric guitar. Right. But my parents would only get me an acoustic guitar. And so I'm taking these acoustic guitar lessons. Or I'm learning, you know, folk songs. Right. And as a, a young teenager, you know, like 12 years old, folk song, I mean, now, of course, you know, folk music is is I, I think is you know there's a lot of folk music that i really appreciate and like yeah but as a 12 year old that was not where i was at i no. wanted to play the beatles and the kinks and the rolling stones and all of that oh yeah on an electric guitar and so so that was problematic <laughs> but anyway but in terms of in terms of um in terms of writing i was always a, a good writer in school and and i also loved to read and so when uh, Rolling Stone started, I like bought probably the second issue and, you know, pretty quick. It was like, this is what I want to do, you know. And so, I, you know, I was reading Rolling Stone. And but I mean, when I was 17, a friend and I, this was during the summer and we started, we thought it was going to be a Bay Area rock magazine that was going to go on and on forever. Yeah. But we did we did one issue of it. We called it Hard Road, which was based on an album by John Mayall and the Blues Breakers. But it was also the idea that the musician's life, it's a hard road, yeah. you know, that they're on. And, um, you know, and so we did one issue. And the thing was, we were friends with this guy, uh, Tom Donahue Jr. And Tom Donahue Sr. was the guy who created underground FM rock music in the Bay Area at KMPX oh, wow. uh, back in like, you know, 67. And wow. so, and that, and, and so, you know, this was our friend's dad. So one, so we're going to do this magazine and we're walking up, we parked the car, I'd parked my car, we got out, we, we, you know, we're 17, we walk up, up the road and at the top of the driveway leading down to Tom Donahue's house is Jerry Garcia. Whoa. <laughs> and and I go up to Jerry Garcia and I say, hey, we're starting this magazine. We'd like to interview you. You know, something. I mean, I don't know my exact words, but right. basically that was the gist of it. And amazingly, <laughs> he says, sure. Wow. And so and we say, well, so, you know, can we do it? You know, we don't have our tape recorder. You know, we want to. And he gives us his address. and says yeah come to my come to my place next you know tuesday night at seven or something you know i, I you know oh, and it, yeah and so we go there and we knock on the door and mountain girl answers oh my god and and she says uh hello what you know what what, what is that what you know yeah and we say well jerry garcia told us to come here at this time to interview him and and literally i'm carrying a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder that's like, Whoa. you know, what, whatever, like 24 inches wide and 24 inches high. And, <laughs> you know, and then we've got a, a microphone, we're you know, and our notebooks. And so we're standing there with, and I have a cat, my camera and all this stuff. And she says, well, let me check to him. But I know he's about to leave to go play the Keystone Berkeley. Oh, and man. we're like, oh, my God. And so anyway... He was about to leave, but 
because he'd completely forgotten about this. I mean, you know, it's not like right. this was on the top of his mind. Yeah. For us, for us, this was like amazing. You know, oh, yeah. Jerry Garcia, the Grateful Dead, is actually going to do an interview with us. You know, we've got our cover. This is amazing. I know and, the feeling. Uh, so anyway, he sat down with us in his living room. We got the thing rolling. I took some pictures and uh, and that was that was our, our cover story oh my. Uh, of, our, of our one and only issue. Because, you know, we're 17 <laughs> and by the time it came out and we took it around to newsstands everywhere and tried to get places to carry it. And I mean, you can't believe how much work it was. And then the school the school year was going to start, and there's no way we could do another issue, you know. Right. It, 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 so, <laughs> but anyway, so so that was kind of one of the key things uh, early on that wow. I did that prepared me uh, to be a be a real journalist. That's amazing! Uh, what a first issue, yeah. first and only issue, though. Jeez. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Man, you still have copies of that? <laughs> um. Oh yeah. I oh do. good. I, I could. I have one somewhere here, but uh, I don't. I don't I, I've had one around. I don't know. I don't have it to show you right now, yeah. but but I have copies. <laughs> that is awesome. Uh, but you know, I uh, you know I was the arts editor of the high school paper, and then I wrote rock journalism for um, the City on a Hill Press when I went to UC Santa Cruz, and then there was an alternative weekly in in the town of Santa Cruz, and so I I became their rock critic and wrote okay. a column for them. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work not dealing well with the stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Try doing that in person. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And a special offer to Performance Anxiety listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash performanceanxiety. That's betterhelp.com slash performanceanxiety. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. You know, after college, I was in San Francisco and um, I got a job working as a copy boy at the San Francisco Chronicle. And that was really useful because uh, they had a, they have, and they still have it. It's called the, the, the San Francisco Chronicle Datebook section. It's a Sunday entertainment section. Okay. And, and so I started writing articles for the for the date book section. Oh, cool. you know, interviews with with musicians. And the thing was they paid $35. So they were paying they, and, and that was still nothing. Even yeah. back, you know, back <laughs> back then it was nothing, okay? Um and and so, but so the thing was they were hungry for stories. 
which was great for me because okay. I had a, I was getting a salary from the Chronicle. So so I didn't care if they were paying me thirty five dollars <laughs> for these freelance articles, you know. But the thing was, the paper had a reach of of like about they, they said two million people. Wow. So so you could get basically any artist you wanted you could talk to. And so so it was great. You know, I mean, I, you know, Smokey Robinson, uh, you know, wow. I'm trying to remember who I mean, it just so many people, Muddy Waters. Uh, oh, man. You know, just just I mean, it was just like all kinds of kinds of people, um, the, you know, the Go-Go's when they had their hit and oh, the cool. B-52, the B-52s and, you know, it, yeah, it just. And so anyway, so then. Because I had all these articles in the in the Chronicle, then I was able to use that and get the attention of Rolling Stone. And anyway, eventually um, I got hired as a senior writer at Rolling Stone, and then I did that for ten years. You know, wow. and that was pretty pretty amazing. Um, I did like cover story on James Brown. I did a you know story on Lindsey Buckingham. A oh. cover story on Stevie Wonder. I did a did a big story on Brian Wilson when he was uh, under the spell of that uh, strange therapist, yes. uh, Landy. Yes. Uh, you know, big story when Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys died about the, you know, sort of what happened. Wow. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I was kind of doing more investigative kinds of pieces. Oh, cool. uh, you know, so I would talk to a lot of people. I mean, you know, I did a cover story on Boy George when Boy, I don't know if you remember, Boy George became, you know, was using heroin. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he really went on a big slide. And so I went to England and, you know, to get the sort of the inside story on what had happened to boy George and how had this all happened. And, oh, man. Uh, and I, I'm trying to remember, I mean, um, did, did a big story, um, sort of what I call post-punk, but it was really continuation of punk. It's the first like serious story that dealt with black flag and the replacements oh, cool. um, and, and flipper and uh, Husker do. Um, and the Minutemen, that was in Rolling Stone. Wow. Uh, so that was kind of a big deal uh, for the, you know, to get for the, for that scene to get that kind of mainstream attention. For sure. Uh, you know, and I wrote about Van Morrison, I interviewed him and uh, X and, you know, I mean, just, just, I mean, lots of people. I mean, for 10 years, I was, I mean, I yeah. did four, I did four Michael Jackson cover stories. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, I, I never got to interview him. I did get to meet him once. But uh, oh man! But I went up to Nev Neverland. I stayed up at, uh, at Neverland for a night. Oh, and jeez! Um, yeah, I mean it was like a lot of like crazy, crazy stuff. And and so anyway, then by 1993, the internet started. Yeah, and I got this idea for an online music magazine. Okay. And there was no such thing. I mean, this was the beginning of the internet. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I was initially going to do this on AOL. And I actually got, there was a guy at, at Warner Brothers who um, was, he thought this was a great idea. So we were having meetings with people at Warner Brothers. The idea there was they were going to fund this thing. Okay. Well, Well, a year goes by and they're still not funding it. And now it's now it's um, 1994, and there still wasn't any any web music magazine. Okay. Okay. 1994. There's no web music magazine. Hardly anybody has the internet at that point. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know. And so I said, okay, this isn't going to be on AOL. 
we're going to do this on the internet. And I met these guys who were in Santa Cruz who were doing, um, doing some music stuff on the internet. And I said, Hey, do you guys want to do the back end of this? And I'll, I'll, I'm going to be the editor. I'm going to get all the writers. We're going to get, you know, all these great people to write for it. You need to handle the tech stuff. So they were, they were game for that. And so on uh, December, I think it was December 1st, 1995, we launched the first issue of Addicted to Noise. Oh, and wow. yeah. And, uh, and this was the second web magazine. The, f- the first one beat us by literally about a month. Oh. And it was, was hot wired. You know, oh, it, was the, okay. the, it was the online version of Wired Magazine. Yeah, yeah. So, so I didn't feel so bad about that yeah. because, I mean, Wired Magazine was great. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I had written for Wired, so uh, it was cool. But um, yeah, so we launched this thing. And the second issue of it, I had REM as the cover story. And, and I went to Australia where they were beginning the tour for their album Monster. Mm-hmm. And they the first dates were in Perth. And Perth is this really out of the way place in Australia. I yeah. mean, really not. Nobody <laughs> goes to Perth as far as that's what I'm told anyway. Right. Well, I wanted to go to Perth to be able to be at the very beginning of the tour. But they didn't want me to go there because they wanted to, like, start their tour with no press, you know, watching. Uh. So but they said it was fine for me to go to um, to Sydney, which was basically their second, the second, second group of dates. They were like three nights in, in Sydney. OK. And so um, so that's what I did. And wow. so um, and so I interviewed um, Michael Stipe in the afternoon and then uh, went to a couple of the shows, which were great, and interviewed their producer, Scott Litt. And so put this big REM package together. And the thing was, you know, this is like the beginning of online journalism. And so as a journalist, I'm looking at this like, this is amazing. You don't have to worry about space. Right. You can just go on and on. You can run, you know, a 10,000 word interview and it's cool. (laughs) You know, no problem. So, you know, that was how we started. But the funny thing was that, or I don't know if it's funny, but it wasn't the long features. It wasn't the columns, even though I, I got Dave Marsh and, and I, we were reprinting Greil Marcus's column and uh, Billy Altman was writing a TV column and, okay. and, and Richard Meltzer. And I mean, I had all these good rock critics doing the columns. And then I had, um, you know, a lot of people doing reviews. Mm-hmm. But the thing that immediately started catching on was our daily music news, which we called Music News of the World. As sort of a, a joke on those, uh, the tabloids, yeah. you know, and um, <laughs> so that just exploded. And so basically we put, ended up putting a lot of focus on the daily music news because people were really hungry all over the world. People were hungry to have new information every single day about their favorite artists. Yeah. And so we were covering, you know, we start, we were covering all the uh, a big broad range of artists from Patti Smith to Fish to REM to you know the Minutemen to Iggy to wow. just you know just a, a wide range but it wasn't lame pop music it was cool cool rock music and you know and some blues and soul and you know but but primarily at that point it was it was rock music and uh, and you know underground rock music and mainstream rock music okay uh, but and uh, yeah so that's kind of 
that was the whole the whole thing. Oh, that is wild, man! <laughs> and then eventually, uh, I the thing is, it was really hard to make money, and yeah. I got I got a lot. Of, I got you know record companies to advertise, and the thing was, I was having to do everything. I, mean, I was having to edit the magazine. I was having to get the ads, and I had I had other people helping me, but I couldn't find. You know, I, I tried different people trying to get them to be able to sell ads and they couldn't do it. And so I, so I was I was running out of money, basically. <laughs> and, and so um, and, and I was going into debt. I was oh. like using, you know, this thing where you could get a lot of credit cards. Well, I had a lot of credit cards yes. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and it was getting kind of it was getting scary. Actually. Oh, no. Uh, and so luckily there was another music website by that point. It was called SonicNet. Okay. And SonicNet was based in New York. And this guy named Nicholas Butterworth was running it. And so I read in the paper that this company had bought SonicNet. And okay. so so I that was in the Wall Street Journal. And so this friend of mine, not friend of mine, but at that point, this guy who was actually David Hyman, who was actually able to sell ads for us, he was going to New York. So I said, David, meet with Nicholas, find out maybe maybe they want to buy us, too, and we can combine. Yeah. And so that's actually what happened. Oh, and wow. so then we then we combined SonicNet and Addicted to Noise. And we were under the umbrella of this this other company that had some money. So basically, we were then for the next like six years, I guess. I mean, let's see, it was how long did it go till? Basically, till two thousand. Okay. Um, I had started addicted to noise at the end of ninety four. So um, there were years when we just had all this money. <laughs> so so basically, at a certain point, my editorial staff was seventy five people. That's wow. more pe that's more people than Rolling Stone or or any other music magazine ever had. I wow. mean it was it was huge. We had people doing, you know, doing because we were doing audio clips with the stories, sometimes video clips. It was it was just a wild a wild thing. And that's um, crazy. Yeah. So I had a had a really wild ride uh during those those early internet years. <laughs> Man. So yeah. you've written a book about a, a guitarist who's just a mystery to so many people, myself included. And I've I've loved his work, and I've always wondered what happened to him. James Calvin Wilsey, Chris Isaac's original guitarist. How did you meet him in the first place? Well, the thing was, I was doing a story for the San Francisco Examiner. This is in 1982. This is before Rolling Stone. Okay. And so then the story was going to be on rising bands, new and rising bands in the Bay, in, well, really in San Francisco. Okay. And so I'm asking, you know, everyone I know, what are the best? Who do you think is best? Who are the new ones that are, that are really good? Yeah. And one of the bands was called Silvertone. Okay, and so so I went to um, to see them at this club called the Berkeley Square in Berkeley, and they were absolutely fantastic. I mean, they were sort of like Ricky Nelson meets the Everly Brothers meets uh, you know I don't know you know Elvis or something. I yeah. mean, it was or with with the shadows you know backing them or something. Right. I mean, you know, and um, the thing was for some of the songs 
Jimmy and Isaac were were singing together at times. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, he was like doing some harmony vocal stuff, stepping up to the mic to do that. Oh, wow. And um, and they were I just thought they were great. And the thing was, their man, co-manager and producer was Eric Jacobson. Mm-hmm. And and Eric Jacobson, for people who don't know, in the mid '60s, he produced six top ten hits for the Love and Spoonful. Yeah. Do you believe in magic and Summer in the City? And I mean, you know, just fantastic songs. Yeah. And you know, I was I was like a young, you know, uh, you know, at the younger end of teenage when those songs came out. And I just flipped over those songs and I had all the loving, I bought all the Loving Spoonfuls albums. And so the fact that Eric Jacobson was working with this new band was very exciting to me. And so I, I met Eric and there, and we, we talked and then he took me backstage and introduced me to, to the band, including Jimmy. And so that was the first time, the first time that I met him. And then over the next uh, number of years, as they were they were developing and you know playing occasional gigs eventually when their first album came out in 1985 i did a story about it was basically about chris isaac for rolling stone short piece but i went to a bunch of gigs uh, at that time and they were they were even i mean they were like way better even than the first time i saw them because you know they had they had a new drummer you know they had kenny kenny on the drums at yeah. that point they had raleigh you know on the bass and uh you know in addition to to chris and jimmy and they were they were really really great and i saw them at this small club called the night break that was on Haight Street, and they did a residency there. Oh, they played cool. played a bunch of nights, and you know, I went to a number of those, and it was it was fantastic. And so I would then, you know, I would go to gigs, and I was kind of getting to know the guys, you know, just a little bit. And then I would, when a new album would come out, like when the second album came out. interviewed Chris again. At that point, I did a did a big story for the San Francisco Examiner had a magazine section. So I did a big story on on Chris Isaac for that. And uh, but I hung with the hung with the band and went to Stockton and interviewed his mother and, okay. you know, went to his, wow. the house where he, where he grew up and met his dad and, you know, interviewed Eric Jacobson at length and the other co-manager, Mark Plummer. And, and then um, at a certain point, 1987, I interviewed Jimmy for uh, probably an hour and a half. And that was the first time where we really sort of sat down together, you know, and I went to his apartment and 
and we hung out a bit. He played me some records. We, you know, and we did did this interview. And then when Wicked Game happened, I did a, a big story. It was it was it was it was sort of a cover story in the sense that I mean it was a cover story, but the cover was shared by four artists. Okay. So Chris Isaac was one of the four on the cover. Okay. So that was a a pretty substantial that was a substantial piece, the longest piece I had written on on them, other than the one for the the Chronicle, and uh, and so I interviewed Jimmy for that as well, and then I um, then I did a profile of Jimmy for Guitar Player Magazine. Oh, cool! You know, it was just on Jimmy, and uh, I think he really dug that. That's awesome. You know, yeah, and yeah, and it, it, it was cool. It was a cool piece, and the, and the photo photography for it was great. It, it was really nice, and um, we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hey guys, I want to talk to you about socks for a second. Why not? It's a music podcast. But I tried a pair of socks from Boldfoot and loved them. I've only worn them once because my kids have stolen them. So in my household, that's the best endorsement I can give. And I guess it's fitting because the design I chose was Jailbait. Wait, Jailbird. The design I chose was Jailbird. I might keep that in. The socks are 100% American made and 5% of all proceeds go to veteran charities. It makes sense seeing that Boldfoot is a family and veteran owned company. They have a huge variety of styles. So check out boldfoot.com and buy some of the best socks you've ever slapped on your feet and help veterans while you're at it. That's boldfoot.com. And anyway, we started hanging out and um, so we, and we became friends and I would go over to his place and he had all these, um, he taped all these Rolling Stones, um, like movies and he had, he had all these, you know, back then it wasn't like now, you know, yeah. I mean, it was like, you know, VHS tape and, you know, but he, he had yeah. all the, all this. And so we would sometimes just hang out and watch, watch the stones or talk yeah. about stuff. Or he would, he would show me what he was doing. Cause he was, he was using this pioneering multi-track recording program that you could, you could do four tracks on your computer. And this was the, this was the beginning. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There was no pro tools didn't exist yet. These were the guys who created the audio recording part of Pro Tools. Oh, and, wow, okay. Okay, but this was the beginning, and it was called Deck, D-E-C-K, and it was four tracks. And so Jimmy was using that, and he actually recorded, I mean, one song he recorded on that was on a on a film soundtrack. Oh, and, really? Uh, yeah. Then he used that to record. A lot of times he would he would work out guitar parts that he would then later do in the real studio. Okay. But that's that's where he he could work it out and he could, you know, do multi tracks and then merge things together and and all of that. And also during that time, and this is this sort of is the side of Jimmy that's. I mean, he's a he he was a really at that point in his life anyway. He was a really gracious 
person who for his would do a lot for his friends. And uh, here he was. This record had been in the top 10, Wicked Game. my son guitar lessons every week. Wow. I mean, we'd go over there and he would like show him how to play, you know, a song that he wanted to play. That's and, amazing. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that's, the, he was just like that. I mean, at, at that point in his life, I mean, yeah. later things got different, but so anyway, so that's, that's kind of how I, how I got to know him. Okay. You know, I mean, he's known best for for wicked game i mean those those two notes anybody hears those notes they know that song and absolutely it, it's i mean that song is iconic it, it is it kind of defines chris isaac i mean but i know he, he was in a punk band before silvertone the avengers but he played bass in that band if i remember correctly yeah no he he played bass in the avengers and the, the thing is okay i mean this is also kind of this is crazy um so you know jimmy had played he played guitar in high school, and that's when he'd gotten an electric guitar. And uh, first he played acoustic, then he got electric. He was, you know, and uh, and he was playing in bands with, but they weren't really bands. They were more just like him and his friends would get together, you know, like and there was a drummer and there was a, another guitar player. And, you know, the, they would get together in his basement and they would play. Okay. And, and there were other people he played with. And, but he was never in bands that performed anywhere. In high school. Okay. But but he played a lot. I mean, and he was learning how to play, you know, songs he liked. I mean, he learned tons of Neil Young songs when the, you know, when Harvest came out because they, they loved that album. And in uh, the Stones, he was a big Stones fan. So he's learning some Stones stuff and all that. But anyway, when he when he got to be 18, he had decided he was going to go to San Francisco and he was he'd go to art school in San Francisco. Okay. Because he was also an artist. I mean, and he was he was seriously doing art at that point. And he was actually doing art. He was he was doing music too, but he thought he was going to be an artist. That's wow. what he thought he was going to do at that particular time when he was back in this suburb of you know St. Louis where he where he lived. Right. And um and so he came out here and that was he got out here in August of 1996. I'm sorry, 1976. And, okay. and in December of 1976, the Mabue Gardens, the first punk club in San Francisco started playing, started, and they had this band called the Nuns that were a, a punk band in San Francisco who okay. played. And then at the beginning of 77, they had this band called Crime. And then at a certain point, the Ramones came out here and played there. And I mean, you know, the dictators, I think, played there. And But there were a lot of bands forming really quickly in San Francisco around then okay. that were, were playing this place. So so Jimmy was here. He was here from the very beginning of the Mabue Gardens. And he started going there practically every night, if not every night. Oh, wow. And yeah, I mean, so at a certain point, I mean, he saw the Avengers. And he was there with his girlfriend 
And he told his girlfriend, I could do that, pointing to the bass player. I could do it. I could be, I could play better than that guy. And, <laughs> and he didn't play bass at that point. <laughs> I mean, he played guitar, he didn't play bass, but, but that was sort of his attitude. So he ran into, Pen he, he'd seen Penelope Houston. She was around the city. I mean, people's paths were crossing. And it, it was a small, small crowd, really, you know, few hundred people who were the punk scene in the beginning. Oh, wow. You know, okay. It was a very small group of people. Yeah. And for San, the San Francisco punk scene. And anyway, he ran into her at City Lights Books, which is what was Lawrence Ferland, the late Lawrence Ferland Getty, you know, who was a beat poet. Yeah. That was his bookstore, which is in North Beach. Right. That, bo that bookstore is like down the block from the Babuay Gardens. Okay. He, he runs into Penelope Houston there and, and he says, hey, could I play guitar in your band? And she says, no, but we could really use a, a new bass player because they were because they were like they were unhappy with Jonathan Postal, okay. who was playing bass at the time. And and now the Avengers have only played for like a month at this point. Okay? Oh, wow. OK. OK. And so so basically she says to him, well, talk to the guitar player, talk to Greg. You know, we could use a bass player. Can you play bass? And he says, oh, yeah, I could play bass. <laughs> you, know, you know, and so he talks to Greg at the Mabue he, when he, you know, everyone is at these at the Mabue every night. Right. You know? right. And um, and so he, he Greg says to him, so he says, well, have you played bass before? <laughs> and he says, no. <laughs> he says, he says, well, do you have a bass? No. He says, well, okay. He, but Greg said, well, there was something about this guy. It was like, you didn't care if he could play bass because he was such a great personality. I mean, there was something about this guy that you just, I could just, he says, uh, you know, I could just see him in our band. I mean, you know, oh, and so, wow. uh, so he says, okay, well, come, this is where we're rehearsing. Come here. And Jimmy Toll said, you know, he'd have a bass. He said, uh, you know, he would have a bass when he showed up. So, <laughs> so he shows up. Okay. He shows up and he's got a bass. And he says to the guy, he says to Greg, he says, you know what? I stopped at this pawn shop on my way here and they had this bass. And so I got it for $75. <laughs> I mean, it oh was like God. so, he was so casual. <laughs> I mean, my way here. And, and so uh, they, they had an amp that he could use and uh, <laughs> they they kind of auditioned him and played songs. And and basically, Greg said he was just perfect. Wow. I mean, he could just and the thing was he he played guitar, you know, he played guitar for years now. So I don't think it's actually that hard if you play guitar to play bass. I mean, I'm sure that a dedicated bass player someone in a major band is is going to have abilities and skills and things that that Jimmy wouldn't have had back then. Right. But this is but this is a you know a raw punk band. This is the yeah. Avengers. Yeah. Exactly. And so and so they brought him in and and that was it. He was the, the bass player in the Avengers till the band broke up. And he uh he co wrote actually their what people think of as their best and most well-known song. It's a song called We Are The One. Yes. And Jimmy wrote, at the minimum, he wrote the verses. And he right. may, not, not the lyrics, the music. Right.
may have, he may have it's 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 unclear whether he wrote the chorus or if uh, if Greg the guitar player wrote the chorus. Greg Greg sort of remembers writing the chorus. Uh, Jimmy told um, you know told this other interviewer that you know he'd written the music, but okay. you know I mean he told him that in 2018, six months before he died. So. Yeah. You know, he could have been elaborating a little bit on right, what yeah. actually happened. But Penelope has a notebook that she kept from back then. And oh, wow. it basically has, you know, in terms of who wrote that particular song, it has her name and it has Jimmy's name. And then added in later is Danny, who was the drummer. So she told me that she thought that meant that Danny may have added like, a little bit of some lyrics or something later, <clears throat> but oh, wow. she wrote, she wrote both, almost all the lyrics and, uh, and she thought Jimmy had written the music. It doesn't matter whether, you know, if Greg, Greg, maybe Greg wrote it. Be Greg was, Greg was and is an, an absolutely incredible guitar player. Yeah. I mean, you listen to him playing, you know, on the, the Avengers songs back then. And he was just like, one of the best. Yeah. I mean, it was just, just amazing. So I, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if he, if he wrote the chorus, uh, that's completely believable. It doesn't matter. But anyway, um, yeah. So Jimmy was in that band and he became kind of a star within the San Francisco punk scene. He was one of the people wow. who was at the heart of it. And the thing was that he was at the Babue, like I told you, almost every night. Yeah. And even though he's in this band that is now becoming very successful within the punk scene, I mean, three, four hundred people are showing up a night packing this club wow. when, the, when the Avengers go, you know, go there. He was like he was always helping other bands. I mean, um, Steve DePace, who is, has, you know, became the drummer in, in Flipper. Mm -hmm. Well, Steve DePace goes up to him and he's, he's not in Flipper. He's not in any band. And he, he, he talked to him and he said, well, how do you get in a band? And Jimmy says, look, what you want to do is you want to go to this record store. It's called Aquarius Records. You want to go to Aquarius Records. You want to write down, you know, what kind of music you like, you know, to play mm -hmm. and that you're looking for a band and you post that there. And, you know, that's where people are going and looking to see if they need to find a musician. Oh, so wow. go there. And that's what happened. I mean, wow. he went there and, and uh, next thing he knows, he gets gets a call. And uh, and so that's how, you know, and so that's the kind of like, like I say, that's how Jimmy was just a really nice guy. Yeah. He didn't have a bunch of airs like like, oh, hey, I'm I'm too good for you back then. The Avengers break up and Silvertone. For, what what is the time frame? And it's such a sonic shift, such a change from the punk of the Avengers to the more, and, and I'm, I'm going off of what I, you know, the very first Silvertone album, the more rockabilly sound uh, of Silvertone. Well, here's the thing. Jimmy was always into country music. And that was partially because his parents dug country music. And right. so there was country records playing in his house. You know, he could play Johnny Cash songs. And that was something that he liked, always liked. And so the Avengers actually kind of spacing out now on the song that they did but um but they um uh, but they pl they played basically a, ro a rockabilly song they did it in a punk way but 
Oh. I think it's. I think. Uh, I think it was "Come On Everybody." I think that's the one. It was. Yeah, they covered Eddie Cochran's "Come On Everybody." Oh, okay. The the Avengers did. Zoom from X, and and Billy was all into, um, you know, he was all into Eddie Cochran, and he was showing him all these riffs and stuff. And okay. so Jimmy started started like he he got into rockabilly. Okay. While the Avengers was still going on, he got into rockabilly, and meanwhile, he was feeling like he was kind of burning out on the whole punk thing. It was kind of getting old for him, okay. and uh, so when the band broke up. It wasn't like he was like, oh, I want to do another punk band. And the other thing was he wanted to play guitar. I mean, even he was playing bass in the Avengers, but he always wanted to play guitar. And he always was playing guitar. I mean, on his own, he was practicing guitar, learning, learning riffs, learning songs yeah. and all that. And um, when the Avengers broke up, and this was in 1979, he wasn't sure he was going to continue in music. Oh, wow. And yeah, and he, yeah, I don't know what he thought he was going to do. I mean, he, he was doing construction and he hated the construction. Yeah. And he hated that. And so, so then he decided, okay, I'm going to do some stuff in music. And so I think he was like maybe doing some good, giving people some guitar lessons. He was uh, just, you know, whatever was sort of coming along. He he played bass for um, for Lenny K uh, when Lenny K came to town. Okay, uh, you know he did two gigs and 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 Jimmy played bass and uh, and so then what happened was originally when Chris Isaac formed the first version of Silvertone, which was at the beginning of 1980. What happened was he was sort of coming up here, and this guy Mark Plummer who was a journalist who was kind of wanted, wanted to manage bands. And uh, he'd been working with some bands in San Francisco and someone played this tape at a party and it was Chris Isaac singing a George Jones song. And it was a really terrible tape and everything, but, <laughs> but he heard this voice and he thought, wow, if I, I want to work with that guy, wow. and he, but he couldn't find him. All he, <laughs> knew was the, the girl who had the tape told him the guy's name was Chris and he was from Stockton. Oh, nice. So, so anyway, some time, some time goes by and he runs into this guitar player he, that he casually knows. And he says to the guy, what are you doing? And he says, oh, I'm kind of, I'm working with this guy, Chris. Um, and he says, Where's he from? Stockton. He says, it's got to be the same guy. Give me his phone number. Oh, so wow. he, he calls, he call, according to Mark, he calls, he calls Chris Isaac up and says, hey, I want to manage you. Do you oh, have wow. a manager? I want to manage you. And Isaac says, well, what are you going to do for me? And, and he says to him, I'm going to make you a star. And then they both start laughing, you know, because that's the, that's the cliche. Right? Right, right. And so they just the sense of humor clicked. And so um, so anyway, he did start managing Chris Isaac. Wow. And so the first thing they needed to do was get a band together. And so 
he asked Chris, well, who do you like, you know? And he liked John Silver's drumming. Okay. And he, and he liked Jimmy Wilsey's bass playing. And so, <laughs> so they basically, um, first Mark Plummer had Silver's and Isaac over for dinner at his place. And those guys hit it off. Okay. And they, Jimmy did not want to play bass. That was just, no, I'm not doing, I I don't want to do it. Sorry, man. So then they got this other bass player, Chuck Cornelis. And so they were, it was a trio at first. Okay. And, and it was called the Silver Tones for about two or three gigs. But, you know, there's the Swan Silver Tones. And so then they changed it to Silver Tone. Okay. Well, at a certain point, they got an Echoplex which is a unit that they used like Sun Records used and stuff, you know, to get echo on a voice or on a guitar. Yeah. And so they needed somebody to run the Echoplex and do sound. And anyway, John Silvers called up Jimmy and asked him if he wanted to do it. And Jimmy said, sure. And so Jimmy started doing the sound for Silvertone. Oh, wow. And yeah. And so then after, before and after the gig, he would show Chris Isaac guitar riffs because Chris Isaac was not a very good guitar player and he could certainly wasn't a good lead guitar player. Right. And he's trying to play, he's trying to play rhythm and lead doing these rockabilly songs. Oh, and wow. Jimmy knows how to play all the riffs for those things. So anyway, and they both bonded over that and over country music. And so they started getting together on a regular basis. And then meanwhile, Isaac got kind of got sick of his rockabilly band. And so <laughs> he, he broke up that band. And so then him and Jimmy were working together. And then the the two of them, according to Jimmy and according to other people, the two of them formed the second version of Silvertone. And Jimmy found the bass player, a guy named Jamie Ayres. And the way he found him was, was really funny. Jimmy got a cab and the, you know, he got in the cab and he's driving Guy's got the radio on and they start talking about music. And at some point, Jimmy says to him, do you play music? And the guy says, yeah, what do you play? I play a stand up bass. And Jimmy goes, oh, we're interested in you. (laughs) Um, And the guy says, we? And he says, yeah, it's this guy, Chris Isaac and me. And you want to come, come, you know, do an audition. So that's how they got the bass player. Wow. And then. And then they brought they brought John Silvers back to play drums. And they actually they asked um, Danny Furious, you know, who was the drummer of the Avengers, if he would play drums. But he um, at that point, he was uh, he was a drug addict at that point, And he was just yeah. totally consumed with that. Um, he, he, he got clean. And oh, he's, wow. he's no longer. Yeah. And he, he lives over in uh, in Sweden. And uh, oh, wow. And, yeah, I think he's a chef in Sweden and he's totally clean. Yeah. That is he managed awesome. to which is great, which is a really great thing. And he's he's a great guy. Anyway, but so that's how that's how Jimmy got into Silvertone. Okay. And and it was it was actually a very natural thing because see, a lot of at the same time that punk was happening, and, and you think about the clash. Because The Clash is London Calling album and then Sandinista, both of those albums. I mean, there's some rockabilly on there. Yeah. There's all kinds of, I mean, it's, you know, there's reggae, there's rockabilly. And, and that, that was the scene. The punk scene included people were listening to like 50s music. They were, and they were listening to reggae music. 
you know, that was part of the thing. What they what they were down on was all these big bloated, you know, the Led Zeppelins and the Rolling Stones and right. you know, all of that stuff. They were they didn't want to have anything to do with. In theory anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so they start playing in, in in the early eighties. Jimmy is in the band for the first four albums, including Heart Shaped World, which like we mentioned earlier has Wicked Game, the you know the song that just exploded Chris Isaac's career, and he lasted one more album after that for San Francisco Days. Well, he played on half of that album. Okay, he's only on half of it. Okay, and the last song uh, he played on was this song "Can't Do a Thing to Stop Me." Oh, I love uh, that song. Incredible song. And the thing about that song, I got to tell you, I saw them do that song at a club in Oakland called the Omni. This was before they had recorded it. Okay. And the live version of that song that I saw was unbelievable. And it was, it was way better than the recorded version. Oh, wow. And, and I actually had a tape of it. And this is, this oh. is what's horrible. I was, <laughs> no. I love that song so much and I'm listening to it in my car like all the time mm -hmm. over and over again. And my tape deck got stolen out of my car and the, ta the tape was in it. Oh. And you know, the person, the person who stole it could care less about that. Yeah. You know? But that was the end of that. Oh. And, uh, wow. and sadly I have not been able to find any bootlegs from back then you know, with that song on it, even yeah. though I have a lot of Chris Isaac bootlegs, I don't wow. have, I couldn't find any with that song. So yeah, but that was the last song that Jimmy played on, according to uh, Eric Jacobson. Oh, wow. Okay. That, and that's, that is my favorite song off that album. I love that song. Yeah. It's a great song. Yeah. Yeah. At this point, Jimmy, has he been into the hard drugs at this point? Because he, I mean, I know he had gotten into some pretty nasty stuff. Is that, what caused him to leave halfway through, I guess, San Francisco days? Well, what happened was uh, Jimmy had actually, you know, when he was in high school, he started drinking and, uh, and of course, smoking weed, but also using speed on occasion. Okay. Um, and some other drugs as well that, that a nurse friend of, of his uh, would get from this hospital. Right. Uh, so right. pretty, pretty hardcore stuff, actually. Really? Then when he was in San Francisco, at first he was using, well, you know, he was smoking weed and I think he was drinking at that point to some degree, but he was also, um, there was a lot of speed going around and okay. he was definitely participating in that. I mean, it wasn't, he wasn't addicted to speed. He wasn't like a, but, but he was definitely using it, but he was very, the thing was at that point, he was pretty anti-heroin and, but what happened was uh, 
in around 1985, and this is when he's in the Chris Isaac band, there was a lot of Persian brown heroin that came into San Francisco through these Iranian guys. And you you could smoke Persian brown heroin. Okay. You know, you, it's called ch chasing the dragon. And basically you would you have a piece of tin foil and, and you put it on the tin foil. You have a, a lighter, you know, underneath it and you get you basically roll tin foil around a straw and then get the straw out. And so then you use the straw to as as the smoke comes up off of the tin foil, you know, from the lighter, you breathe in the smoke. And and that's how you get you get high. Okay. Uh, and so that that's what chasing the dragon is. And so so Jimmy started doing that in in late eighty four eighty five. Wow. And he he later told a friend that he felt like he'd come home the first time he's he like used heroin. Oh. That wow. it was like such an overwhelming positive experience for him that he basically never stopped after that. Um, oh my gosh! And there's a lot of reasons for that, and I kind of get into it in the book. I, I, I definitely deal with the whole issue of addiction and why some people become addicted in the course of the book, because um, right. I thought that was really important. It's not just you know you use heroin a bunch of times and suddenly you're addicted. I mean, there's other factors that uh, are involved. But anyway, but the thing was, it wasn't like he went from zero to a hundred. It wasn't like that. I mean, he was and, – and actually, people are able to – I was surprised at this, but actually I, I shouldn't have been because I mean, people can use use heroin for decades. And some people can use it and not have to um, – they can sort of maintain. And they can maintain their jobs and they can wow. they can manage to do all kinds of things for extended periods of time. And so Jimmy was kind of into it but not – not to where it was uh, getting in the way of anything, okay. as far as I know, at that particular point in time. Okay. But as time went on, he was using it more. There was a point where he started. He wasn't just he wasn't smoking it. He was shooting it. Wow. And and he got to a point, and, and then what happened was the thing was okay. So he's going along, and I think he he had all kinds of expectations of what would happen. If they had a hit. And I think these expectations were way out of line with the reality of something like that. Okay. And so when Wicked Game happened, I mean, the first he, he said to me, like, Wicked Game became a hit in England first before it was a hit here. Okay. And Jimmy said, said to me, you know, we have a hit, but I don't feel any different. And nobody knows we have a hit. I have to tell them that we have this hit. And I said that, you know, and that it's uh, like, that's a big, that's a drag. You got to tell someone that you're like famous in yeah. England. I mean, trust and, me, I'm famous. And so um, he, he felt like he should have gotten more credit than he got for that song. Oh, um, okay. And, and he, and the thing is, I mean, Chris Isaac told me, that Jimmy really deserved a lot of credit, that Jimmy was very responsible for that song becoming a hit. Yeah. You know, I mean, Isaac himself said that. And uh, well, so the thing is, when um, before Wicked Game became a hit, sometime in 1990, he got a relationship going with a movie star or actress named Jennifer Rubin. Okay. Jennifer Rubin was, uh, she was uh, 
Gosh, he was in this the horror movie, A Nightmare on Elm Street, number three. Okay. Third one. And she had a brief part as Edie Sedgwick in the Oliver Stone's The Doors. And uh, okay. and she was in other movies and other TV things. And she had been a, a model before that. So she was on the cover of, of Mirabella magazine and, and other magazines. So anyway, she got, got introduced to Jimmy and they just like, I mean, it, they clicked. I mean, that night they clicked. Yeah. And, and so- so he has this actress girlfriend, but he's he's happy about that they're playing, you know, to all these big crowds. And he's happy that they have this hit that's on the radio and they do the Tonight Show and, you know, all this stuff. And he's got this great girlfriend and, and all this. Yeah. But he's not happy about his situation with Chris Isaac. He okay. feels like he should have more credit. He feels like he should be getting he should get have more money. And and he just doesn't feel it doesn't feel different to him in in some ways. And and so at a certain point, because of things that were going on in Jennifer Rubin's professional life and this stuff that was going on in Jimmy's life, Jennifer Rubin just couldn't deal with the scene anymore. And she broke up with Jimmy. Okay, And that hit him really hard. And. I think he she says she doesn't think that he was doing heroin while they were together. But I think he probably was. And, you know, he was there's ways to do it. There was times when they weren't together. And, I, you know, and, but anyway, so his heroin use accelerated. And then after the breakup, it really accelerated. And to the point where he would show up for rehearsals and he couldn't play his parts. Oh, wow. And yeah, I mean, he was he was messed up. And at a certain point now, Eric Jacobson, you know, the producer, co-manager, he doesn't remember. He, he says he can't remember if Jimmy just quit or if Chris fired him. Right. But some other people said that Jimmy was fired. Yeah. And and I believe I think that's what would have happened. That That makes sense. And but the thing was, Jimmy also he was sick and tired of working with Chris Isaac. I mean, he told me that. I mean, he, you know, and, and he was not happy with some of the stuff that was getting recorded for the fourth album. And um, so anyway, I, so I think that it, I mean, he was, he was fired, but he might have quit if he hadn't been fired. Okay. Um, that could have, it's possible that could have happened. I, I don't know. Um, and so then he just went into a terrible drug thing and was just really, really messed up on heroin and he would hole up in his apartment for for weeks basically oh, like man. he'd be in there until he until he ran out of money and ran out of drugs and then he would leave and go to the bank which was across the street and get more money out because at that point there was royalties that were coming in so he had he had money yeah he wasn't paying taxes on the money he oh. went, which which came later i mean he owed it was a point where he owed over a hundred thousand dollars in back taxes. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. So that's that's kind of what happened, you know. And then he was basically using heroin for the rest of his life. But yeah. but he did. But in the but even with that going on, you know, in two thousand and seven, he recorded this amazing solo album. Yeah, you know, called El Dorado, which is an amazing album, and he did it all in his dining room, sitting at his computer. I wow. mean.
I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. In the interim between, oh, like 1993 San Francisco days and 2007, what was he doing? I mean, was was he? Well, well first he was, I mean, he, he's, you know, he had this whole horrible drug thing going on. And then at a certain point, he got into some tr- some kind of trouble. Like he, I think he owed people money in San Francisco, and he called up this girl he knew in L.A. and it was like, "Hey, I got to get out of here now." And she said, "Okay, fly down. You can stay at my place." You know, he got on a plane that night, flew down. She picked him up, brought him to her place. They didn't tell anyone that he was there. Oh wow! And and he got clean. She said he got clean for a while. Okay. While they were together. And and then they became they got into a relationship. And so she was his girlfriend for a while, but then he started using again. Oh, and so to the point where she had to tell him to leave. Oh, and so then man. so then in the earlier part of, of nineteen ninety eight, he went and moved in with his brother, and his brother was supposedly was was helping him clean up. And then he met he met this woman named Winter and he moved in with her. She had this big loft. He moved in with her and eventually they they got married in 2003. They got married. They had a kid, Waylon, at the end of 2003. But also in 1998, right about by July of 98, he had he formed an instrumental band called The Mysteries and they played around L.A. Um, I mean, I was I had uh, a reporter working for me who did a story on the mysteries. Oh, wow. and it's online. You can find it if you if you search if you search MTV and the mysteries, you'll find this story. Oh, cool! And, okay, and uh, find two of them actually. But anyway, um, so we did the mysteries. Then 2003, you know, I means you know, married he has Waylon. Meanwhile, in 2002. He got a job doing IT at a big Hollywood marketing company. That was basically it's a company that that does. Um, well, see, he always had this computer thing going on. Okay, this is another side of him. I mean, he was a consultant for Apple computers back in the late '80s. Oh, and, wow! Yeah, and there's actually a a video online you can see where that's a whole thing about apple computers and music and jimmy has a whole section in it it's got like five artists and he's one of the artists or six artists man that's awesome yeah yeah and so so he was like you know running this it department for this place and had a a responsible job and somehow he was managing to keep that going at the same time that he's using heroin because he had this like terrible Thing, thing in 2000, um, I think it was 2002, where he was, uh, he almost OD'd and this friend of his had to, had to like help him and get him to a place where they could, this place where they gave him, gave him this stuff that, that basically, um, dealt with his withdrawal symptoms. And, um, so it was like, yeah, he was somehow maintaining, but he worked this job through, through the recording of El Dorado. He worked this job. And then he got fired in the beginning of 2008. And that was also a time when his girlfriend had broken up with him because of the heroin use. And so, uh, I mean, yeah, it was just this yeah. roller coaster ride thing going on. Oh, that's, that's so heartbreaking. It's, I know. It's just terrible what, how this played out. 
you know, El Dorado is just, it's an incredible album. It's, I love that album so much, but I mean, he's got a SoundCloud page and he's got yeah. some other tracks that, that like, all right. So this song Priscilla by Heather Saval, uh, Strawberry Jam, The Gasser, Ravioli, all these really cool tracks. Has there ever been an attempt to consolidate all these loose tracks? As far as I know, no one has has done that so far, you know. And the thing is, I mean, it would have to be a record company that was kind of doing it because they really just just because they dug Jimmy because. You know, El Dorado, they, they didn't sell a lot of copies of El Dorado. Yeah. And they didn't think they were going to sell a lot of copies of it. I mean, Lakeshore is a is a movie company. And they they basically signed Jimmy because they thought his music would be – they could use his music in films. And there was a point where they were looking for, for great artists that could make music that would work for their films. Oh, and, okay. And so, so Jimmy – fit that bill and so they could do the cd but they told them up front you know we're not going to promote this thing we're not going to give you tour support or anything like that yeah. you know we, we can't do that you know we're not that kind of company and jimmy was fine with that or who knows what jimmy thought because <laughs> you know jimmy um at there, there was a point where sort of i think jimmy was kind of disconnected a little bit from the reality of things um yeah. and so maybe he just you know he thought well this is going to this is going to revive my career. This is going to, I don't know. But, you know, periodically, it's, what's really sad is, I mean, Jimmy should have been, he could have been an incredible session musician too. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. But but for some reason, it just didn't work out. There was one point where he did some stuff for Billy Idol, but that stuff never made it onto a record. Oh, wow. And then, and then Lana Del Rey contacted him and he recorded she gave him this song of hers and he um it was her just her voice singing and jimmy recorded guitar against that and it's so beautiful i mean you know and i have three versions of it and i mean every each one of them is really great one of them is just even t- you know is, it goes to another another level oh, wow. but but she she ended up taking the song in a completely different direction and you know and basically what jimmy you know jimmy had uh, friends say you know, jimmy was really excited when that happens and when he was working on that stuff yeah. and then suddenly he's not getting any calls anymore oh, you know God. and i mean if she had used his stuff that might have things might've turned out a lot different. I don't, but you don't know I yeah, mean, because, because Jimmy would also, when things were going really good, that can also be a time when, it, when someone who's an addict 
really gets heavy into the stuff because they can't deal with the pressure. Yeah. And now they have, you know? they have the funds to fund their habit. So. Yes, they have that. But yeah. I don't, we did kind of gloss over the Chris Isaac years a bit for several reasons. I mean, it's a huge part, but it's also, it's also a big part of the book. And I want people to read the book and not just listen to the podcast and forget about the book. So, um, <laughs> right, right. But one of the things, and I, I reached out to several people that I know are big fans of, of Jimmy's. One of the questions they all wanted to know was if Jimmy and Chris stayed in touch at all after he left Silvertone or was fired from Silvertone. And uh, if I'm assuming it was not the best split. So I was wondering if they ever kind of reconciled and, and were, were on speaking terms afterwards. Well, um, you know, he was, he was out of the band in... 1992 okay and then he after he was out of the band at a certain point chris was worried about jimmy and so this is what i was told okay that he was okay i was told this by michael zagaris who was um a photographer who started photographing silvertone back in um 82 oh, and yeah became kind of friends with both Jimmy and Chris and Zagaris. Um, he photographs um, the 49ers and the Giants. Oh, and okay, so yeah. he would he would bring them to games. And nice. yeah, yeah. So they, you know, they became friends. And um, anyway, Zagaris and Chris went to Jimmy's apartment and you know, they knocked on the door. There's no answer. They're calling, you know, you know, Zagaris looks through the mail slot and he said it was just looked like a disaster area in there. It was uh. horrible. And finally, they just, you know, sort of hear Jimmy faintly saying, just leave, you know, leave me alone. Leave. I don't want to see any, you know, something to that yeah. effect. And and Chris says to Zagaris, well, isn't there something we can do? And Zagaris says, there's nothing. And Chris says, there's got to be something. And then Chris basically says, well, look, what are you going to do? First, you're going to, you know, you're going to get him to rehab. Then are you going to pay for him to be in, in rehab at one of these places for, yeah. for a month? And then after he gets out, then what do you, what, you know, I mean, you can't, yeah, you can't, it's just, you can't do this. I mean, yeah. and so then Jimmy actually, he, over the next um, couple of years, I mean, he went on to went into, you know, methadone programs a couple of times, you know, but failed to um, didn't succeed with those. Or if he did, then he, you know, fell back and uh, backslided. But then um, when he went down to L.A. and after he got when he was living with this woman and kind of cleaned cleaned up, she told me that there was a day when the two of them went to Capitol Records studio where Chris was doing some recording okay. and hung out with him a bit. And oh, wow. uh, that things were, you know, Amy, you know, were friendly. Yeah. And then, then as far what I understand is they then didn't see each other again until I think it's 1999. Yeah. It was uh, October of 99. Isaac was playing a free concert at the Staples Center 
and uh, which was basically 11 blocks from where Jimmy was living in this loft that his girlfriend had. Oh, wow. And yeah, and this is in downtown L.A. Okay. is where the loft is. And so um, so after the sh- this show, Chris Isaac and uh, Raleigh, the bass player, and some other friends showed up at the loft. And, you know, it was kind of there was kind of a party kind of going on. Oh, nice. And it was I mean, I was told it was kind of it was tense between Jimmy and Chris when he, you know, when they first showed up. Then one of the uh, women who was with Chris started telling some jokes and, you know, doing some doing some kind of funny, funny things. And um, and that kind of broke the ice. And also Jimmy was really glad to see Raleigh um, because they had been they I guess they had been pretty good friends. But a lot of people were smoking in the loft and uh, and Chris hates cigarette smoke. Doesn't you know? Chris Isaac does not want to be around cigarette smoke because uh, of his voice okay. and um yeah so that was kind of a problem and so after a while he he left i mean it wasn't like it was a great reunion or or anything it was okay uh you know it was just sort of a it was you know it was just sort of it's okay, okay. but it wasn't like any it wasn't like they were Okay, now we're going to work together again, or, right. or anything. Yeah. And and the thing was, his girlfriend was really encouraging him to work with Chris again and to see with see them. I mean, she said, "Look, they they want to hang out with you. You know, yeah. why don't you call them?" But he just didn't want to. He didn't want to do it. And then at a certain point, the guy who lived right next door to them in the loft was this guy, Bill Sankey. He's a bass player, but he's also a producer, and he had a recording studio in the loft next door. Okay. And he became really close with Jimmy. They were like best friends for a while. And they yeah, they hung out every day. And so at one point he he said to to Jimmy, you know, he said, "Look, man, it's like Chris Isaac just keeps on going and going, you know? And these guys, you know, like, you know, the guys in his band, yeah, they're not stars they're not getting the big credit and everything but they're you know touring the world and they're they're playing in the band and they're yeah. playing for people and and they're making money and yeah, it's exactly. not it's not like the worst thing in the world but he just didn't want to hear it and oh, basically man. and so bill bill just said i never brought it up again because it was really clear that 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 was just he didn't want to talk about it and he wasn't going to do it um, yeah. now years later in 2016, Jimmy briefly moved back up to the Bay area, moved oh. in with a, with a girlfriend up there. Okay. And at that point he was invited to come because Chris Isaac and the band were going to play at the hardly strictly bluegrass festival. That's a okay. yearly free, huge concert in Golden Gate Park. Oh, that, cool. it's a major thing. And it's not just bluegrass. I mean, that's why it's hardly strictly bluegrass, because <laughs> I mean, every, you know, everyone plays there from, you know, Jorma Kakawan of the Jefferson Airplane and that band Hot Tuna, yeah. you know, to, yeah, just, just all kinds of, of big stars, Lou Harris and all oh, kinds awesome. of people play, play the thing. And uh, so anyway, Isaac was going to play that year. And they asked him if Jimmy, if he would come and sit in, but it didn't happen. He didn't, he didn't end up 
doing it. Oh, uh, and I have no, Raleigh told me about that. I have no idea. Um, he doesn't know why Jimmy didn't do it. It just didn't happen. So, yeah. I mean, so many missed opportunities. Yeah. I mean, and Chris Isaac said at one point that he would like to work with Jimmy again. But yeah, like I say, it, it never happened. Ah, uh, it's so heartbreaking because he, I mean, he ended up homeless. Yeah. And the thing was, he, he didn't have to be homeless. I mean, he had money, but he was so messed up that, yeah, it was just, I mean, as I understand, stand it, he didn't, he didn't have to be, I mean. Right. At what point, I mean, it, it sounds like he just, at the end, almost gave up the uh, music. Was there a point where he just kind of stopped recording and turned his back or uh, on playing guitar when were the drugs too much at that point well he didn't really stop i mean he you know after his um uh, his you know solo album he he kept working on stuff and and he uh, you know and there's all that stuff that's up you know that you you saw up on the you know online yeah on the, sound, at, on the uh, soundcloud page soundcloud yeah, page yeah yeah yeah, it's, yeah and he um he got into this thing where he was what he told several people was he was making these really short instrumental pieces and they weren't just like the stuff he did on El Dorado they were different and and so i think there's a couple there's there's a one or two really short things that are on soundcloud yeah. maybe that's along the line of what he was was doing but you know he so he he kept working, and when he was interviewed um, by this guy who who did his the, the last interview with him, and that happened in um, like July of 2018, and while I mean he had his his little studio set up, there was in a bedroom of the house where he was he was living, yeah, and half the room you know they were like his. He, he had a single bed over on one side of the room and he had his his Mac and, and his, you know, keyboards and, and you know, synthesizers and all that stuff. Um, and all during the interview, he had this uh, guitar that he was he was trying to fix. Uh, there was something wrong with the pickup and he was he was trying to, like, reattach the pickup. And oh, geez. but he but but he was messed up. And so he never was able to do that during this three hour interview but the point is that he he was still doing stuff or trying to do stuff you know that was six months before he died okay now now obviously at a certain point when they left the house you know they were basically there was an eviction notice and they hung around for a while but then they you know they they left the house and at that point for first he was like sleeping in his car and so I'm not sure what happened with the stuff that was in the house, you know, yeah. the, the computer and, and now maybe that got, he maybe he put that in storage or, or something. Yeah. Because most of his stuff, most of his stuff went to Arizona where his sisters um, and other family members live back in, in 2000, in late 2016, he got, he had brought all this stuff, all the stuff up to the Bay Area. And then his girl, girlfriend at a certain point because of the drugs said, you got to go. 
got wow. you got you know you're you're gone man yeah. and uh, so at that point all that stuff went up to Arizona okay and then um so when he went back to LA he brought a computer and and you know a guitar or two and but not but you know stuff that could fit in in a car i guess and so he didn't have a lot in LA okay you know at the point when he he was homeless oh it's man it's it's, yeah. it's just such it's a fascinating and but heartbreaking oh, it's, story. Oh, it's tragic. It's it, a, it's tragic, and I mean, you know, I I've lived with it for for three years, every day for for more than three years actually. At this point, for three and a half years, yeah. And so you you become a little bit kind of used to it or something. I, I guess is the only way I can can put it, but but not really, right. But it's different than when I first when I first heard about it, I just about fell over. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God, you know, and and it's and it's just terrible. It's absolutely terrible what happened, how his life ended. It's it's just a horrible thing, you know, and um, but I've tried in this book, I've really tried to I really tried to emphasize both or explain why Jimmy was important and what was special about his playing and the unique contributions he made and i because i had interviewed my jimmy myself for you know over 4 hours when he was in his prime you know when when he wasn't messed up right and then i also had this final 3 hour interview that he, that he did at the end of his life so i had 7 hours of jimmy talking and then i also had over 10 hours of Chris Isaac talking. And then I interviewed, I interviewed more than 60 people over the, the three years. And a lot of those were like very extensive interviews. There were some people like, like Eric Jacobson, for example, that I went back to throughout the whole three years. I oh, mean, as new man. questions would come up, I'd go back to, to Eric and, and ask him about this or about, about that. And so, um, yeah, so, so this was, very deeply reported. And also Jimmy is in the book in a big way himself, because Jimmy himself talks throughout the book. And he talks, he talks a lot about how many of the songs on the first album, like how they were recorded or how he came up with his guitar parts. And so, I mean, for a guitar player, I think that would be particularly interesting. Oh, for sure. Uh, I was fascinated by all of that. And, um, you know, and I'm not like, you know, I'm not a, a musician. I mean, I mess around a little bit, but I'm not a, not a musician. But I just felt uh, it was really important to get all that in the book and to just show Jimmy both at his best and then kind of what happened, yeah. you know. And it's also, um, I hope, I would hope that maybe some musicians you know, who would read this, some young musicians Maybe they wouldn't try, you know, go down the drug, you know, thing yeah. by seeing what happened to Jimmy. Yeah. You know? um, A supremely talented like, guitarist who just lost it all. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, he should have, God, there's, he should have made so much more music. There should be so many more albums yeah. with Jimmy playing on them than there are. And it's a really sad thing that that's not the case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, he could take a song like um, Sleepwalk and yeah. make a song that everybody knows sound 
like a Jimmy Wilsey song. Yeah, that's really, really, really beautiful. And then also the, uh, the the Carpenter song, which wasn't actually written by the Carpenters, but they made it famous. Superstar, yes. is, I mean, his his version of that is just beautiful, really incredibly is. beautiful. And um, he, you know, he's he just had he had a tone and he had a feel. Yes, I mean that was so special and it's and the thing is it it wasn't like you know i mean and and jimmy you know he wasn't a flashy player at all no he was he was the opposite of that but but his playing it was so just so beautiful and or and i mean some and then there were times when it was you know on the on certain on a bunch of the chris isaac songs where it's it's very sort of dark or it's very very powerful, very, um, you know, like on um, You Owe Me Some Kind of Love, which is a song off of the second Chris Isaac album. Yeah. I mean, his guitar just makes that song. Oh, I yeah. mean, it's it's so incredible. There's a reason uh, David Lynch loved these guys. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, so I, I so I really tried to get that that get that into the book and to talk, you know, just to try to convey that, you know, there was just this special kind of the, a special thing that he had yeah. that it was just it was there. You know, it it's not like you could say. You could go, well, that's it, or that's it. Right. It, it was a sort of ephemeral thing, but that just made his playing so special. There's just, yeah, like we said, there's just a, a feel, an aura about the way he played music, the, the way he played that guitar, and you can't teach it. It's just something that he got. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, he like, it's like he took all this stuff that he'd listened to, but he turned it into something unique. Yeah. You know, that, sure. that wasn't just like, it wasn't like he was copying what he heard. It was like he took it and then he put his own spin on it. Yeah. Like, like the, the song Strawberry Jam, it, it's definitely to me, but it's got like a, a Stonesy feel to it. She 
Right, I right. really like that track. And the, al- the album, I'm so used to talking to people about albums. The, <laughs> the, <laughs> when is the book coming out? And I know that we were discussing that uh, some of the proceeds are going to help out Jimmy's son, Waylon. Yeah, you know, when Jimmy died, uh, his son was, was 15 years old. Wow. You know, just I think he was just turning 16 that year. Is that right? Anyway, anyway. Um, and so one of his relatives became his guardian and he left Los Angeles and, and went to live with them in Arizona. OK. And um, I mean, he he turned 18 this past um, December, but he's still I mean, as far as I know, he's still been living with the relative and preparing to go to college. And okay. but he's 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 a very good student. And I felt when I began um, working on this book, right from the start, I decided that I wanted to give a portion of my royalties to Waylon. I just, I just felt like I had to do that. You know, it was just, I just not, I couldn't, couldn't do this otherwise. Yeah. And um, so I'm giving him 25% of whatever I get, and it's not like I'm not deducting expenses or anything like that. Basically. If I earn a dollar, he gets 25 cents of every single dollar that that is, you know, going to be paid to me by the book company. That's so wonderful. Um, that is so generous. And so, well, I don't I don't know. I mean, I just uh, whatever. I, I just felt like it was the right thing to do. And, um, you know, I, and it's not like I mean, I've I've made that public because I want people to know that some of their money is going to go to Waylon. And the thing is, yeah. if um, the best place to buy the book is from the directly from the book company's w- website, and the company is called Hozak Records and Books, and okay. this company it's it's started out as like a as like a punk record label in Chicago, and they started putting out records. They they fifteen years ago they started putting cool records out. Okay, and and um, the guy who founded it loves music he's he's as obsessive about music as i am and as i'm sure you are yeah i mean that's awesome you know yeah i mean that's his thing is is music and and then he started the book division you know some years ago and um and so this is a really cool indie operation that this is there is nothing corporate about this book company and i mean my contract is less than one page. Oh wow! <laughs> now and and it's not and not microscopic type. Right. I mean, okay. And I'll tell you something. With um, most book companies, it's like a fifteen-page contract, and it is microscopic yes. type. <laughs> I mean, and it gets into. I mean, it's unbelievable what like book contracts are like. Oh, but gosh. but this one is as simple as it could be, and it was it was cool that that was the deal this this guy is just a great guy who oh, that's awesome. started this company um you know you know so anyway he and he's going to give a small percentage of of what he gets to Waylon as well oh so, um, wonderful and so when when somebody buys the the thing is when you buy the book directly from the book company the book company does not have to give half of the money to a bookstore or probably more than half the money to Amazon. Right. Yeah. See, and so therefore my percentage is bigger. 
Wayland's percentage is bigger. Yeah. What the guy who has this indie company who wants to put out more cool books and records, he gets, you know, so it's really, it's, it's a really good thing all the way around. And you get the the book for what it's supposed to sell for, you know? Um, So, so anyway, I've, you know, we're really encouraging people to, to buy the book from the website. And in fact, I think we're going to, I think he's going to wait a bit before you can get the book elsewhere. So it's like to encourage people to get it from the website, you know? And I thought that was a cool idea. I I liked it. He has a really different approach to, um, to everything. Than, oh, that's than awesome. most most people and he's been around 15 years so it's working <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah. Well, all right so what what's the website and how can people follow you on social media and keep track of what you're doing and uh and then help Waylon? okay well the website is hozak h-o-z-a-c records.com okay and all you got to do is put put hozak records in and it'll come up you know Hopefully you can uh, you could put a link somewhere. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if they just Google Hozak Records, go to the website. They'll you know right now the book is really prominently displayed there, so um, they can get a preview of the book. I mean, the book is 414 pages. There are 150 over 150 images, which include photographs and fly reproduced flyers. There's some of the best photographers from San Francisco, and in fact, some of the best photographers in the country have contributed photographs to this book. Oh, and that includes, um, there's a couple of photographs from um, Bruce Connor, the avant-garde artist. Oh, cool. There's, there's the, the late Bruce Connor. Yeah. There's, um, there's great photographs from Ruby Ray, who's a fantastic photographer who was there in the heyday of San Francisco punk and who's had a couple of books of her photos out. She was just, and is, an incredible photographer. Michael Zagaris, who I spoke to you about earlier, mm-hmm. he, he's had, um, he had an amazing, huge coffee table book of his his rock photos that came out. He contributed a bunch of photographs. Oh, Chester awesome. Simpson, Hugh Brown, Sue Brisk. Yes, um, some great photos by Sue Brisk. Yeah, I mean, there's just... Um, a lot of great stuff. I hope I have an, Oh, there's a photograph of Jimmy that Chris Stein, you know, from Blondie. Took. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have some photographs cause I'm, I'm also a photographer and I shot the Avengers at the Mabue gardens in 78. And, awesome. uh, you know, I have a great photo of Jimmy that I took at the Santa Cruz beach when we went there one day. And, um, and uh, then there's other stuff, you know, in there, some, also some photos of, of other, like a photo I took of the punk band crime and a photo I took of Iggy pop. Cause J- Jimmy was a huge Iggy pop fan. Yes. I Patty, saw that one. Yeah. You know, Patty, a photo I took of Patty Smith. He was a huge Pat. In fact, the Patty Smith group was what um, made him feel like he could actually do it. Because oh, he, wow. he heard them play and he thought he loved it. And he thought, and you know what? I could do that. I can't do what Jeff Beck does. Right. But I could do what, what, you know, what they're doing. So the king uh, is slow. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, people can, you know, that's how they can get to the website. If they want to keep up with me, um, I have a blog called Days of the Crazy Wild. And if you blog Days of the Crazy Wild, you know, it'll it'll pop up, oh, and cool. um, and I'm I'm you know whenever something happens relating to the Wilsey book or another book I have coming out at the end of the year, I I put the information up there, 
And I also have a Days of the Crazy Wild Facebook page, but I also have a Michael Goldberg Facebook page. Okay. And, uh, you know, and, and whatever's going on, I, I put on put on there if there's anything new to report or oh, wonderful. whatever. So this is as close as I could ever get to to getting Jimmy on the podcast. So man, thank you so much. <laughs> I, I really have enjoyed reading the book. And, and like you mentioned, there's so many amazing images, images of, you know, of him as a kid. It's just a really amazing collection. I've, I've... It's really, yeah, there's one. It's really funny. He was, when he was in high school, he played on the football team. Yeah. <laughs> For one year, he was like the shortest player on the team. So the, in his high school yearbook, there was a picture. There's like the guy who was the tallest player. And there's Jimmy. Yeah. This guy is almost twice as tall as Jimmy. It's a really, really funny picture. I remember that one. It made me laugh so much. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for all the time. Cool. Cool. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.